the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You all may know that the Episcopal Church has a new presiding bishop, uh, Bishop Michael Curry. A few of you were at the cathedral last Sunday when he was installed and he preached uh, an amazing 30-some minute sermon that seems like it's five minutes when you listen to it. Um, Our audio failed this morning, so we couldn't listen to it, but I encourage you to find it online and listen to it at some point and, and watch him. In a sermon that we watched last week by Bishop Curry that he preached in the summer at the General Convention, he was calling on us, calling on all Episcopalians, calling on all Christians um, to be a little bit crazy. And he was talking about the need for some crazy Christians. He can say it much better than I, but I think he would agree that in today's scriptures, we meet some crazy people of faith. They're crazy. What they do and how they live out their faith makes no sense. In the first reading, there's a widow who's living in a small town, and she's poor, and she's hungry, and she's run out of options. She's just about to give up completely, and then Elijah the prophet comes by. Elijah sees her and asks her for something to eat. It's almost like a joke. Uh, Here's this woman who has nothing, and this man asked her for something to eat. In fact, she responds to him maybe a little sarcastically, maybe somewhat despairingly. As the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of dough and a little bit of oil. So I'm just going to get a couple of sticks to keep me and my son warm while we starve. In other words, no. But Elijah persists. Elijah has faith, not only in this woman, not only in his ability to find food along the way, but Elijah has faith in God to provide. And something about Elijah's faith catches. And so this woman probably thinks at some level, well, I might as well starve today or tomorrow, so I'll make food for him and he can have it. Elijah says, don't be afraid. Go ahead, try it. Put everything on the line. Bake some bread for me and for you and for your son, and you'll find God will provide. And the widow does just that. She shows generosity to this stranger, to Elijah, this wild-eyed prophet. There's no sense in that. She seems to forget her own hunger. She forgets the hunger of her own son. She sacrifices for this stranger, for the wandering prophet who nevertheless somehow conveys something of the Spirit of God to her, something of God's presence, something of God's promise. And so she gambles, really. She puts it all out there. She guesses, she risks. She has no reason to expect anything in return. Maybe she's just gotten to that place of hunger where she can't feel anymore, and so she might as well help someone else who's hungry. But then this amazing thing happens, doesn't it? The miracle happens. God provides. There's enough meal all of a sudden. There's a miracle that's made out of this very little. It's like the loaves and fishes. There's enough. There's plenty. They stay warm. They grow. They grow in their belief. They grow in their reliance upon God. 
In today's gospel, there's a parallel in some ways to this widow at Zarephath. In the first part of the gospel story, Jesus has been teaching and pointing out the hypocrisy of these serious faithful, the religious scribes. The long robes that they were wearing were meant to be a means of modesty, but clearly these folks had had taken it to a sort of extreme of pride. They were very pleased with themselves and wanted everybody to see it. Instead of doing their important work for the temple, keeping the written documents of the temple, sort of archiving things, preserving sacred texts, working as lawyers and judges and helping to move on and convey the the law of God to everyone around. These scribes were taking advantage of their privileges. And so Jesus uses the scribes as an example of how not to be, even as he points across the way to this lowly widow to show us how to be. Jesus notices the widow. He notices how she appears to be poor, outward appearances, And yet she's the one who shows generosity. She puts a few coins in as an offering. She uses her very little bit to help those who are less fortunate. You wonder what goes through her mind. Of course, she sees this big temple. She sees people coming and going. Why should she give them her few coins? What difference is that going to make? She's probably all too familiar with the corruption in the temple. She knows the system. She knows the the problems, the oppressive forces going on there, the sorts of things Jesus will confront in the the reading we hear during Holy Week. But even though this widow might know all of the problems before her, she nevertheless decides to put all that aside and give of what she can. She lets God worry about the system and the problems but she gives what she thinks is right. That's craziness. That's being crazy for God in a generous way that sort of makes no sense to those who might have been looking on. I don't know about you, but that sort of being crazy and generosity doesn't come easily for me. I tend to let a lot of incidentals get in the way. I can think of specific times when I've been in, been in big churches or cathedrals and uh, everything seems to be booming. And so when the collection plate comes by or when I pass the alms for the poor slot, I tend to be a little stingy. I look around and I think they don't need me. They don't need my little five or ten dollars or whatever it is. They don't need me. There's no, no reason why I should give here. They're doing all right. Sometimes I think maybe my money is not being spent correctly, or maybe I've read an article about what the rector is making. <laughs> Who knows what, what reason there is why I might not want to dig deeply. And yet when I think about being most faithful, when I feel most faithful, I'm giving for others not so much because of the institution or the church or the people in charge or the programs, I'm giving out of my own faithfulness, my own sense of wanting to give, wanting to share, wanting to be of use, wanting to be generous. Giving has to do with my own faithfulness, really. 
Am I willing to sacrifice for others? Am I, am I willing to begin to put a little bit of my body and soul into a place where God can begin to use it for a greater good? If I remain stingy or judgmental in every situation, then I begin to close myself off. Who knows what I'm missing out on? Who knows what I'm closing down that God might have wanted to use for some opening? The letter to the Hebrews reminds us of a sacrifice that's far larger than anything we can ever give and larger than anything we can ever repay or fully imitate or even perhaps the side of heaven understand. It's a sacrifice made not out of human striving or working or trying to be good, but it's the sacrifice of God. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is that sacrifice that's already worked to take away the power of sin in our lives, in our world. That sacrifice makes a way for us to see God. That sacrifice makes a way for us to be generous like God. In the life of Jesus Christ, God himself is giving himself to us. In the death of Jesus on the cross, God is giving himself In the resurrection from the dead, the full life of God is being emptied out into a dying world so that all might live through the the power of sacrifice, through the gift of generosity, through the power of God to bring us out of error into truth, out of sin into righteousness, out of death into life. God invites us to know that grace of sacrificial generosity. Who knows what that might look like in your life or mine. Sometimes it means going without particular things for a time as we put money aside for someone else or something else. It might mean fasting like we do typically in Lent, but we can do it any time of the year. Fasting, giving up food or drink while we use that money to help the hungry while we try to listen to our own soul and notice our own hunger, to be in solidarity with those who are truly hungry, who knows what it may call on us to do by way of sacrifice. Sometimes in a congregation or in a family, we're called to sacrifice our opinion or our say or our idea as the Holy Spirit begins to convict us that maybe it's time for someone else to talk. (laughs) Maybe it's time for another idea to win the day. That widow at Zarephath, as well as the widow outside the temple with just a few coins, both show us what it is to be truly generous, to be crazy in generosity. But really, these are reminders. They remind us what we already know about ourselves and those around us, what we already know about our world. We already know what it means to give on behalf of others, what it looks like, what it feels like. And we know the opposite. We know that feeling we get in the pit of our stomach when we withhold and don't help and later regret it. We know what following Jesus looks like. And we have examples in our own parish, in our own church family. We we have their names around in lots of places and we have their names in our hearts For some reason recently, I've been thinking about one particularly crazy Christian. Some of you remember Suzanne Eyman. Sue had worked for a lot of years downtown at First American Bank. 
And Sue loved all souls. She loved to travel. She loved to laugh. She'd lived in the Philippines for a time way back. And so whenever I would visit, we would talk about Filipino food and Filipino customs. And she would want to know what I'd eaten recently. And we would talk about that. Her best friend and her sidekick at All Souls was Anne Cleary. And truth be told, when Anne died, a a sort of spark went out. Sue wasn't all that interested in coming to church as much. And as other of her friends died through the years, she was content to stay at home. She liked visits, and she liked to talk about All Souls, but she was okay not coming. Her other great friend in life was a woman named Dorothea, and Dorothea has a daughter who's named Becky, and Becky was like a goddaughter to Sue, and she was there with Sue, especially in the last few years of Sue's life. When I would visit often, Becky was there like a daughter, truly a goddaughter. We would talk about all souls and catch each other up on the gossip, and she knew about her hopes for an elevator and an expansion, though she knew that she'd probably never see it. Eventually, Sue slowed down, and then she died at home in peace. We had a good celebration of her life here. Some of you were here and remember it. And Becky, that goddaughter, Becky and I had talked a couple of times after Sue's death. But about a year and a half after Sue had died, Becky called, and she wanted to come by. I assumed maybe she wanted to talk about grief and what it's like a year or two or five when someone special has died and it it comes back in some new way and feels all over again new. And so she came and we sat in my office and uh, there was some construction going on outside the window already just early on. But we sat in the office and we talked about grief, we talked about Sue. And then Becky asked, you know, what's going on? How's the project coming? And I talked her through all the pictures that we had and the plans, and she listened and she asked questions. And when she came to the building, she had used the ladies' room. And so then she delicately asked, well, is anything going to be done about this building? And I said, well, we actually don't really have plans for that. We're focusing on the new wing. She understood. And she asked about the construction and the, the process and how long it would take. And then there was a pause in the conversation. It was almost with a sort of operatic drama that she reached into her purse with an envelope. And she said, I hope this will be helpful. I think Sue would like it. And I took the envelope and said thank you and tried to be a good Southern gentleman and not open it, but just thank her no matter what it was. And then she said, no, you should open it. So I opened the envelope and I looked and there was a check for $479,473.07. A might indeed. A mighty might. Who knew? Who knew that Sue had tucked away that sort of money all those years? That she would choose to give it to all souls, a place she hadn't been in in a handful of years. She could have done any number of things with that money, but she chose All Souls, and Becky thought it would be an appropriate thing to use it on the building. She chose All Souls where God had been known to her, the place where she'd known God most richly, where she'd experienced God. 
Sue was a smart lady, and she knew that a lot of things would change in the future. The, the worship style might change. Rectors would come and go. The vestry would change. Leaders would leave, and new leaders step up. All sorts of things would be different. And yet she thought all souls was worth it. Like that widow at Zarephath, like that widow outside the temple, Sue Iman continues to show us what it is like to be crazy in generosity, crazy in a way that will help others for years to come. Every year about this time, I think of a former bishop of mine, the right Reverend Richard Grine, the retired bishop of New York. Bishop Grine used to always sort of look at people uh, with amusement when we were uh, complaining about having to preach during stewardship season or ask people for money or remind people that their giving keeps the church going. Bishop Grine would just say, you know, preaching about stewardship, asking or inviting people to give to God's work should be easy. Just ask people, have you ever seen a generous person who wasn't happy? That question frames it all, doesn't it? Have we ever seen a generous person, generous of of spirit or of time or of heart or of humor or of money or of, of time, of talent? Have we ever seen a generous person who wasn't happy? May God help us to be happy this day and into the future. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.